here is we're talking about what would it be like if God became one of us, and, and he did, and Christmas was, was the start of it. So on Christmas, we met Jesus as he starts his life. He's a newborn baby laying in a manger. Now, as we read about the wise men coming, Jesus is maybe two years old. So the question is, what happened in between from lying in a manger to the wise men coming when he's two years old? Well, the first thing that happened is after Christmas, Mary and Joseph and Jesus found a better place to stay. Um, Christmas Eve was this stressful emergency where she had to, like, emergency give birth in a stable and put him in a manger, and there was no way that this was their long-term plan. So probably when the sun came up in the morning, right, Joseph went out and started looking for a place for them to stay, and pretty soon he found one. So sleeping in that stable was was a one-time thing. Now they have a more permanent place to stay. Maybe it's a rented house. Maybe it's with family. Now what happens? Well, they followed the traditional Jewish customs that you'd have with your child. So when Jesus was eight days old, the local rabbi came and circumcised him. He's part of the official Jewish covenant. And then he gets his official Jewish name. And they gave him the name Jesus. Remember what Jesus means? It means the Lord saves. And this is the name the angel had told them to name their son. So he's named. He's officially you know, a part of the covenant. And then when Jesus is 40 days old... They take him on his first road trip, which is a five-mile walk over to Jerusalem, and there he's officially presented at the temple as a member of the Jewish nation that way. Again, a Jewish custom. And maybe you remember on that day is where these old prophets named Simeon and Anna, who basically lived at church, they came and held baby Jesus and gave prophecies, and God inspired them to say these things about what Jesus was going to do and how he's going to save the world. And Mary and Joseph are remembering, you know, this is the Son of God, this is an amazing thing. So he's 40 days old. Now what do they do? Well, they go back to Bethlehem. Because to go back to their hometown in Nazareth would have been a five-day journey. And you just can't take a tiny baby on a five-day walk on the road. So Mary and Joseph are just going to have to wait a little while until Jesus is older. Um, And so Mary and Joseph are, are chilling in Bethlehem for probably a year or two. Um, again, maybe Joseph has picked up some carpentry work uh, and he's you know, paying for a rented house. Maybe they're just kind of crashing with family. But Jesus is living in Bethlehem. He's living in a house and he is learning how to roll over. And then pretty soon he's learning how to crawl. And then pretty soon he's learning how to walk like by toddling around and holding on to Mary's fingers. And then pretty soon he can walk by himself. Maybe he's holding on to the wall And you just picture, you know, this cute, probably chubby little toddler. And it's at this stage that I'm not sure where Joseph is. He might be at the shop. But Mary is hanging out with little tiny toddler Jesus. And and all of a sudden, there's a knock on the door. And so Mary goes and opens the door. And there at the door, she sees this caravan of foreigners filling the streets. And they're leading horses. Probably not camels, probably horses. And these horses are loaded down with precious gifts of gold and incense and myrrh. And Mary is just like, who is this at my door? And then they say to her, your son must be the newborn king. We saw his star in the east and we have come to worship him. And Mary is like, you know, what's happening? Um, Who are these visitors? And, And where have these visitors come from? Well, they're most commonly known as the wise men. Some Christmas carols call them kings. Uh, The actual word that Matthew uses is magi, which almost sounds like magicians. 
but evidently they're, they're great stargazers. And then they also believe in God and in the promised Savior, and they're coming to worship him. So it's like wise men, kings, magicians, stargazers, theologians. Who, who exactly are these visitors again? I think to answer that question, it's important to understand in the ancient world, science and religion were not viewed to be like opposites and so different from one another. Science and religion were, were very closely connected. I think in today's world, and probably incorrectly so, but it's made out to feel like religion is way over here and then science is way over here. In the ancient world, people didn't think that way at all. They thought, if someone is studying how the world works, that person is also studying and learning about the God who made the world. Science and religion is, you know, two sides of the same coin. Uh, for example, like today, we would draw a big difference between astronomy and astrology. So what is astronomy? It's a study of the stars, right? You like studying the constellations and what's going on up there. What is uh, astrology? your sign and your horoscope, and it's like this superstitious telling the future. So we would say these are very different things, right? This one is like science, and this one's this mystical, superstitious stuff. They just assumed it was the same thing. If you knew what the stars were, you probably knew what the stars meant. And the same person would be studying both of these fields, and the title for that person would be a, a magus, uh, and the plural would be magi, um, a wise man, a, a scholar. Um, so speaking of wise men, we talked about this in Bible study, right? We live in the information age, where if you're wondering something that happened in history, if you're wondering how something works, you just look it up online. You look it up on Wikipedia. And even before Wikipedia, you could go to your encyclopedia and look it up. But these are days where there's no internet, there's no encyclopedia, most people can't read. And so this was a very valuable position in ancient culture. Like this wise old scholar who knew about science and history, and chemistry, and religion, and geography, and astronomy, and kind of everything in between. Uh, this would be a wise man or a, a magi. And, and this particular role was so important, um, the person who's like the fountain of knowledge, because they've got all these scrolls and all this research, was so important that they would typically be the advisor to a king. And a king would have a whole court of magi and wise men and advisors that he would consult. So this is probably where these wise men came from on Epiphany. They probably came from some king's court, and it probably was the court of Babylon. So maybe you remember how a few hundred years before this, the Israelites had been exiled off to Babylon, uh, and some of their best and brightest, all their best and brightest young scholars had been brought into Babylonian society, and some of them grew up and became very... Uh, influential in Babylon, became leaders in Babylon, and one of those was a man named Daniel. Daniel has his whole own book in the Old Testament. You can read about Daniel, and maybe what you remembered about Daniel is that he was thrown into the lion's den, and God protected him from the lion's den. But there's much more about Daniel. He had this whole career in Babylonian society. He was very high up in Babylonian society, and the whole time, he was not afraid to share his faith. That's what got him thrown to the lion's den and then pulled back out when God protected him. He was not afraid to talk about his God. And he had this whole career as part of the Babylonian Magi. And so it seems that after Daniel and other believers like him in Babylon, after the Israelites went back to their land, this faith that Daniel and others had had and this specific promise that God was going to send a king, that God was going to send a savior, and maybe even the scrolls, the Old Testament scrolls, about that Savior who was going to be born, 
those things were part of now like the Babylonian library and the studies of the Babylonian magi. And for them, it was probably just one of their many different books and their many different religions and things that they studied, and, and it was there. And so then, in the year of Jesus' birth, something amazing happened, is that on the day Jesus was born, it seems, God put a brand new star in the sky. And if God put a brand new star in the sky today, we wouldn't even notice it. When's the last time that you checked out the stars to make sure they're all in the same spot? We just don't do this anymore, right? Um, maybe we would read online and find out that there's a new, a new star. But these magi are charting the heavens like they did all the time, and God has put this star in a place where it's evident to them. It came out of nowhere, and so somehow they link up this star with this idea that's in their scrolls and their books and their history that there's going to be this Jewish king. And this star seems to be over Judea. And so some of these magi pack up some gifts. They get on their horses, probably not camels, and they travel to the west over towards the land of Judea. And this is where the story gets kind of ironic, almost kind of comical. They get to Judea, they come right to the capital, to Jerusalem, they go to King Herod, and they say, where is the one who has been born the king of the Jews? We've seen his star when it rose, and we're here to worship him. They're surprised that, like, the whole city is not celebrating. Where's, where's the king? We know that the king has been born. And of course, there's already a king. Uh, the king's name is Herod. I won't bore you with all the political situation and how he's like a puppet king underneath the Romans, but there is a king in charge named Herod. And it says, when Herod heard this, he was very disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. Now, do you know why everybody else was disturbed with him? He was disturbed about the new king, they were all disturbed about what Herod was going to do. Because Herod was a complete psychopath. Uh, if you read in history, Herod was so paranoid about getting his throne taken over that he killed off most of his immediate family. He murdered his brother-in-law, his mother-in-law, his wife, and three different sons in all kinds of ways to try to box them out and preserve his throne. Then after he killed his wife, he felt bad, and so he preserved her body in a vat of honey where he could still visit her and see her. So when you s tell your loved one, I love you, honey, it makes you feel a little bit different about it. Anyway, um, just making sure that you're still with me here. So Herod was a dangerous man. He was a, a crazy guy. And so then he, when he asks the wise man about the, the uh, new king, he's being very sneaky here. Tell me where you find him so that I can go worship him. And we're going to find out, of course, he's not going to try to worship him. He's going to try to eliminate him. So the wise men consult with like the people at the temple that have the whole Old Testament Bible and they're reading <coughs> excuse me they're reading the prophecy of, of uh, Micah Micah where it says he's going to be born in Bethlehem so they go to Bethlehem and they find him they go to the exact house where Jesus is and they go in and worship him and they give him gifts fit for a king gifts that would come from a king's advisor gold and incense and myrrh. And then having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by a different route. <clears throat> so that's the story of the wise men. There were probably more than three of them. They probably didn't ride on camels. Um, they didn't visit Jesus on the night he was born. It wasn't until he was a toddler. But they did have gold and incense and myrrh. So what now is the point? Um, 
Why do we talk about this every single year? It's 12 days after Christmas that we study Epiphany. Why did God record this in the Bible where these Babylonian guys come to, to worship Jesus? I think there's two main takeaways we can have from this episode in the life of toddler age to Jesus. The first one is this. Appearances can be deceiving. So you think about it. On Christmas night, yes, there were angels appearing to shepherds and telling them that a savior had been born who was Christ the Lord. And yes, those shepherds did go to the manger and they saw him and then they went away rejoicing to spread the good news to all their friends. And yes, as Luke tells us, all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But then all this buzz around baby Jesus didn't last very long because a year and a half later, by the time that the Magi come, they're like, where's the king? And nobody is paying attention. Nobody even knows. That little tiny baby laying in the manger didn't look very majestic. That normal-looking little toddler growing up in a cheap, rented house didn't look very impressive. And so the people of Bethlehem were missing the Savior of the world, even though he's growing up right in front of their eyes. And it's a little bit like that today, perhaps, that appearances can be deceiving. Think about that Christmas story, that little Christmas story of this family huddled in a stable and it's probably cold outside and they're warm and cozy. Like, this looks like a nice, cute little thing that you'd plug in and put on your shelf and turn out all the rest of the lights. Maybe listen to Silent Night on Christmas Eve. But now, we're in the new year, your decorations are getting put away, and it seems like you would take this warm, fuzzy story that, that brought you good Christmas vibes and that you would just kind of pack it up and put it away too. It's over, it's done. Uh, but appearances can be deceiving. There is nothing, there was nothing warm and fuzzy about what happened to Mary, having to do this emergency child delivery in the middle of a stable because she couldn't find anywhere else to go. It was intense. And there's nothing warm and fuzzy about what was going to happen to Jesus. Right? As God lives in a human body, he's going to go through all the temptations that he's fighting off and all the pain and problems and frustrations of life that we have. And then he's going to get arrested and beaten and crucified and killed. He's going to pour out his blood all over the cross to make atonement for the sins of the world. And then he is going to rise triumphantly from the grave to conquer death for us. So appearances can be deceiving, like this quiet little bundle in the manger is actually a triumphant warrior coming down from heaven, and he's on this gritty, epic mission where God is getting his hands dirty in a human body. God is going to die for us, and that is going to make the difference between us getting condemned to hell and us instead getting to go to heaven. So, like, this is, this is massive and huge, and it lasts forever. It's not this cozy little thing that you unplug once January rolls around. Still today, appearances can be deceiving. Jesus is a lot bigger than we think. Point number two, God will do whatever it takes to bring people into his family. So you just think about this. The Jewish people knew the Savior was coming. They had their scriptures about the promised Messiah. How hard did God work to make sure that these Babylonian magi got the good news too? What did God do to get faith into the hearts of these wise men? I mean, first he took the gospel message and brought it to Babylon through Daniel, hundreds of years ahead of time. He put Daniel into that specific spot to share his faith in that certain way so that Daniel's faith and the Jewish scriptures become part of their culture. 
Then, hundreds of years later, he puts a specific star in the sky where they will find it so that these specific wise men can see it and they can come visit Jesus and learn about him. That's how badly God wanted them to believe and that's how badly God wanted them to bring the gospel message back to Babylon so more people from across the world can believe. Um, God will work for hundreds of years. He will go above and beyond to make sure more people become part of his family. Um, so what about you? What has God done to bring you into his family? So all of our stories are different, but all of them are more impressive than we would think. So for example, I'll just give you mine. Here would be my story. This is everything God did for me. After the life of Jesus, God caused the message of Christianity to spread around the Mediterranean world. God's not content to leave it there, but he spreads it to the violent pagan tribes of Europe, including the violent pagan tribes of Germany. And then Europe and Germany start to become centers of Christianity. Germany becomes the center of the Reformation, where people are going back to the Bible as their source of truth. My great-great-grandparents emigrate from Germany to America. God uses them to pass their faith down to their kids and them to their kids and them to their kids and they pass it on to me until then I am born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, not breathing properly. They don't know how long I'm going to live. And so I get baptized on the day that I'm born. My dad, who's a pastor, is the one who passes on God's gospel then to me in this hospital in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, across the ocean, different language, different culture, so far removed, thousands of years after Jesus. All those pieces were put in place so that Lucas Bitter could be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And you just think how many people were involved in that whole story and how many generations and how many nations and God used all of this simply so that he could put his love into my heart and now so that I could be sharing his love with you as your pastor. So that's just my story, but God's done your story and you all would have your own story to tell, right? Maybe your faith was passed down to you from generation to generation to generation. Maybe your parents were the first ones Maybe you are the first one. Maybe you came to faith from reading the Bible or from, from coming to church and hearing sermons or maybe from the witness of a friend who talked to you about Jesus. Um, I was going to say, maybe God is bringing you to faith as you watch this service online right now, right? But God is always working. He's always working different ways to bring people to faith. Whatever your story is, just the fact that you're here 2,000 years after Jesus, listening to his word, this is proof that God will do whatever it takes and use all of this history to connect more people to himself and bring more people into his family. And God has not stopped doing this since the time of Jesus or since, since our time. So back to our New Year concept, how do you think God is going to use 2022? How is he going to use this next annoying chapter of the COVID pandemic, right? Or how is God going to use your relationships with your friends and neighbors this year? How is he going to use your relationships with your kids? What seeds is God planting now that are going to bear fruit generations later? And we don't know all these things. But as God looks at all of us, like we are all part of this intricate plan that God is continuing to work right now because God will do whatever it takes to bring more people into his family. And he is just going to continue to do this right up until the day that the world ends. So, 
on this Epiphany Sunday, take heart. Things are going to be okay. Um, you know, maybe you're doing church from home again. We had to do that on Christmas. Your, your kids are doing virtual school again. Our social events are getting canceled again. We can't figure out how to run our AV. Like, life is frustrating right now. And maybe you just get so tired of all these frustrations of life. And maybe you've put the Christmas decorations away already. Like, if you're really on the ball, you, the Christmas tree is out at the curb. And it just feels kind of like... Christmas is over, it's cold and wet, and it's kind of hard to be excited about anything. Maybe you don't feel a huge surge of joy moving into 2022. But appearances can be deceiving. And this miracle that God started at Christmas, the good news of great joy that will be for all people, this miracle has continued down through the ages all the way up to your life, and it is still continuing through you as God continues to spread his love to all kinds of people who desperately need to know about it. Um, so God's Christmas miracle, Christmas is never over. It's continuing in your heart and in your life as God uses you to do whatever it takes to bring more and more people in touch with, with his gospel. Um, so God is not going to stop working on you and through you until you are safe home in heaven and God has used you to impact many other people along the way. So some chapters are really fun and exciting while you're reading them. Some chapters are a little filler, feels boring, and it's not until later that you look back and see everything that God did. But what a cool story to be a part of, that you are part of God's story, and this new year is God's next chapter as he uses you to connect more people to his love. Amen. And now the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard and keep your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus, your Savior. Amen.